Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. I'm thankful that you've chosen to listen to our podcast today. You know, one of the controversial issues that we talk about a lot among evangelicals, and especially uh, related to the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism and traditional Southern Baptist, is the whole issue of the atonement. Limited atonement, particular redemption, universal atonement. It's the whole issue of the nature of what Christ did on the cross. And this past week, I came across a blog entry on SBC Today. Now, if you've ever gone to SBC Today, you know that it is the primary blog or website that promotes the traditional Southern Baptist viewpoint. It's highly anti-Calvinistic in, its, uh, in, in the entries that they have on there. But I came across a blog article and also a sermon from Dr. David Allen. Uh, Dr. David Allen is the Dean of the School of Theology and the Professor of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And so this is one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, a very prestigious seminary, and Dr. David Allen is a godly man. I, I uh, respect David Allen. I think he's done a lot in the area of expository preaching, uh, training uh, young pastors to be expository preachers. Um, I've read some of his uh, work and, and actually have used some of his quotes in my doctoral thesis. And so as far as believing in inerrancy and the importance of expository preaching, I highly recommend uh, the teaching and the work of Dr. David Allen. I think he's, a, he's got a great um, heart and a great uh, ministry in leading young pastors and especially seminary students in the area of expository preaching. But with that being said, he is also one of the chief um, opponents of the resurgence of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace within the Southern Baptist Convention. And so he's contributed to some books and to some conferences. And, and right now he seems to be uh, one of the, the chief opponents of limited atonement or particular redemption. And so on this blog post on SBC Today, uh, this was on February 23rd, 2016. It's called 1 John 2, 2 and the Extent of the Atonement. It links to a sermon that he preached, and I think it was at First Baptist Irving, Texas. I'm, I'm not sure, exactly sure where it was. But what I want to do is I want to interact with Dr. David Allen's Arguments And basically what he's going to say is that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it denies or it's exegetically impossible to come up with limited atonement based upon how he interprets 1 John chapter 2. And I think that he does a fairly good treatment of this. And he brings up some interesting issues. Uh, I'm going to deal with an illustration he brings up. He's going to bring up two students up on the stage, a, a young girl named Victoria and a young man named Sean. And he's going to try to illustrate this. And I, and I think his illustration really breaks down. But what I want to do is I want to interact with his, his sermon, just a small portion of this. And I want to talk about some of the things that he did not address that we as Calvinist or Reformed theologians really think about or process or look to when we, when we read these passages of Scripture. Uh, 
But let me just begin by reading the text that he's referring to. This is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, you know where he's going with that. It's got the terminology, the whole world. And so he's going to camp out on that and try to, try to let us know what that means, that Jesus' propitiation on the cross was for the sins of the entire world. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived is living now and will live. And so what he's going to start with is the extent of the atonement as opposed to the intent of the atonement. You see, we who hold to the doctrines of grace start at a different starting place. At least I do. And, and, and you know, there's, there's a various different opinions on this as far as where somebody lands on this issue. You know, there's not a monolithic viewpoint of the atonement among Calvinists. We, we differ. There, there are four-point Calvinists, there's five-point Calvinists, and, and even among five-point Calvinists like myself, there's different views on the extent and the intent of the atonement. So I'm just going to give you what I believe exegetically the questions we need to be asking. And so what oftentimes happens is, is they start with the question, for whom did Jesus die? Did he die for just the sins of the elect or did he die for the sins of the entire world? That's where they normally start. I think that's a secondary question. The, the extent of the atonement is really the second question. Really the first question that we need to be asking is, is a more fundamental question and that is this. What did God intend, or ask it another way, what was God's purpose in the death of Christ? What was God's intent in the death of Christ? And so how you answer this question will determine your view even before you get to the extent of the atonement. Um, the extent question is, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for every single person who's ever lived, thus the whole world, or did he die for the elect only? I think it's secondary to the intent. What was God's intention in sending Jesus to die on the cross? I think there are five questions that need to be asked in relation to this issue, in relation to 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2, and also in relation to Dr. David Allen's sermon. First question, and we'll, we'll address these as we go through, as we interact with this sermon, but I want to give you the questions up front so you can kind of see where we're going because I think these are questions that he did not fully develop. And now, I don't want to fault him for not developing these because this is a sermon in a church and having preached every Sunday, you only have 40 to 45 minutes to get everything in. Uh, this was a sermon, okay? Uh, so it wasn't a, a talk. It wasn't a symposium. It wasn't a conference or a workshop. Um, it wasn't a, a dialogue or, or a roundtable discussion. This was a point he was making in, in a sermon. And so you can only spend so much time in a sermon. So I don't fault him for not dealing with all of the issues, but I think if we're going to talk about 
the extent and the intent of the atonement, these are some, some questions we've got to ask. So here's question number one that I think that needs to be answered. And this is the most important one. What actually happened on the cross when Jesus was made a propitiation? The text says He is the propitiation for our sins. What does it mean that He is the propitiation? What does that really mean? Was God's wrath against sin actually propitiated? Did He literally turn aside God's wrath on the cross for a particular group of people? Or was the propitiation simply hypothetical in the sense that it made salvation possible based upon you meeting the conditions of believing in Jesus. So what's the nature, what's the definition, what really happened on the cross in propitiation? Question number two, did Jesus on the cross actually purchase everything that we would need in order to have salvation? Namely, did Jesus purchase the gifts of repentance and faith on the cross, ensuring that we would actually come? Maybe you've never thought of this before, but did Jesus actually purchase everything needed for us to come to Him, including the faith that we would need to come to Him, including the repentance that would need to come to Him. In other words, the conditions of salvation, repentance and faith, were those actually purchased for us in the atonement and then given to us in regeneration, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Third question, how is the word world or cosmos used by John? John uses this in the Gospel of John and in his epistles in many different ways depending on context. So what really, how does John use the whole world? What does the whole world mean? When when he talks about Jesus was the propitiation not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world, how do we understand that statement, whole world? Question number four. What is the apostolic example of the preaching of the Gospel? Towards the end of his message, he's going to talk about how if you believe in limited atonement, it's going to affect the way that you preach the gospel. And so his view of how you present the gospel is very different than the apostolic method and model that we see in the book of Acts. How did the early church preach the gospel? What was their message? That's another question that that we need to ask. And then another issue, question number five, is this. He introduces the idea here, John does, in verse 1, that Jesus is an advocate. An advocate. In other words, Jesus is an intercessor. Jesus is an advocate. The book of Hebrews says that he is a high priest. And so the question then becomes, how does Jesus' role as the high priest, as our advocate, how does that relate to propitiation? In other words, the question we've got to ask is, does Jesus atone for and intercede for the same people? Or to ask it another way, does Jesus atone or make propitiation for the whole world, and yet does he intercede for the whole world, or does he intercede only for believers? Can, can you divide up his intercession, his, his advocacy as the high priest, from his propitiation? Those are some questions that I think need to be developed deeply into this text to understand this issue. So let's begin with Dr. David Allen, and let's just 
hear his sermon. This is towards the end of his sermon, and so uh, we're not listening to the whole thing. This is about 43 minutes um, into the video. I'm not exactly sure where the video starts, but uh, this is where it's at, Um, and so this is where we're going to start, and I want us just to listen to the sermon, and then we'll stop and pause and interact with his thoughts and his argumentation. So now John, does. he's not through. Notice he said, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. But look at it. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Question. For whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers to that question. Either, as some people believe and teach... Jesus died for some people's sins and not for others. In other words, Jesus died for the sins of those only who believe in him. Put another way, Jesus died only for the sins of those whom God elected to be saved. He died for their sins, but everybody else's sins he did not die for. That is called limited atonement. That's one option. There's only one other option. Jesus died for the sins of all people, period. Whether they believe or don't believe, he died, he shed his blood for the sins. He was a propitiation for the sins of all people. Now look at your text. Look at the Bible. John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. John is writing to believers. The immediate letter of 1 John was written to churches in Asia Minor. They were Christians. John's writing to Christians. He's including all believers. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but John doesn't stop there. He says, and Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of what? The whole world. Now I want to ask you a question. On a normal Just simple face reading of that. Would you interpret that to mean Jesus died for some of the sins of the whole world? Or would you interpret it that he died for the sins of the whole world? Well, it would seem obvious that this text says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, those who say that Jesus did not die for the sins of the whole world interpret 1 John 2.2 in one of three different ways. They say that when John says he died for our sins, that means the sins of Jews. And then he also died for the sins of the whole world. That means those people who would believe among the Gentiles. So Jesus died for the sins of Jewish believers, but not Jewish unbelievers, those who would never believe. And he died for the sins of Gentile believers and not the sins of Gentile unbelievers. And that's what whole world means. That's one view. The second view says that when Jesus said he died for the sins, when John says he died for the sins of the whole world, that is taken to mean certain people out of the whole world, certain people groups, and people within those people groups are saved, or Jesus died for their sins out of the whole world. That's the second view. And the third view says that when John says Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, the word world there is equivalent to the elect. So read it like this. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world of the elect so that all that God has chosen to be saved will be saved. Those are the people for whose sins Jesus died and those whom Jesus did, God did not choose to be saved. For those sins Jesus did not 
die. Those are the three options, the three ways this passage is interpreted. Every one of those three options is exegetically impossible. Okay, he makes a bold statement there that says those views are exegetically impossible. Now, let me just give you what I think the three options are. Option number one, when he says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he's talking about the elect. And for the sins of the whole world, the non-elect. This is the, the, um, the, the, the view that David Allen would hold to, that Jesus died for the sins of us as his children that are already believers, and also for every single person who's ever lived, even if they don't believe. And so even if you never believe in Jesus, he still died for you. He was still your propitiation. That's the view that he's going to argue. I think there's two other ways that you can understand this passage of Scripture. John is writing to Jewish believers who are in Asia Minor. We see this in the Gospel of John. We see this in 1 John. John is writing to Hellenistic Jews. Now, Hellenism is basically the Greek culture. They were Greek-speaking, Greek culture, ethnic Jews living outside of Jerusalem, and they were in Asia Minor. And so he could be saying in the context of 1 John, our sins, meaning particular church, us in Asia Minor, Jesus died for our sins, who I'm writing to in the immediate audience, and also for the whole world, meaning believers, those who are going to believe outside of Asia Minor. Not this category of every single person who's ever lived. It could just be in the immediate context, I'm writing to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in Asia Minor, Jesus is our propitiation, not just immediate audience, but he's also for those, for the whole world, meaning those outside of Asia Minor. Or the third option is Jewish and Gentile, the, the argument he gave there that, that's a little bit broader. Jesus is not just the propitiation for our Jewish believers, but he's also the propitiation for the whole world Gentile believers. And so it depends on how you understand John use, John's usage of the, the word world or whole world. Does he mean every single person who's ever lived past, present, and future? Or is this a Jewish expression or Jewish idiom to talk about the world as opposed to just not just Jews only, but, but the Gentiles? Think about it this way. When you go to a, um, let's say you go to Disneyland. We're, we're planning on possibly going to Disneyland uh, this summer, and, and we've been in the past, and, and you go there. Last time we went, it was 2011, and it was the opening of Star Tours. And my son loves Star Wars, and so this was just an awesome day to go there. And there was like, it was packed to the gills at Disneyland. I mean, it, there were like five-hour-long waits. Now, when we came back to Colorado, after going to Disneyland, my son could have said something like this when he went to his friends and they asked him, you know, how was it going to Disneyland? He could have said something like this. The whole world showed up. The whole world was there. Now, does, does that literally mean that every single person in the entire world showed up on that one day to Disneyland? 
No, we, we, that would be 7.5 billion people showing up at one point in time. That's not what we're talking about. It's an expression saying, my goodness, there was a large amount of people that showed up. It's the, the whole world showed up. And so I think sometimes when John uses this idea, the whole world, he's, he's making it in contrast to Jewish believers and also Gentile believers. And so the question then becomes, all right, what is the nature of propitiation? I think David Allen focuses so much on the definition of the whole world that he fails to see the idea here that propitiation is something that Jesus actually did on the cross. Now, what is a propitiation? What does that mean? There's a lot of debate in this passage of Scripture whether that Greek word means expiation or propitiation. And there's two schools of thought, and, and most conservative evangelical scholars come down on the side that the word means propitiation. And so what does propitiation mean? It means a removal of God's wrath by means of a substitute. So let me just ask you a basic question. If Jesus on the cross was a propitiation, was God's wrath removed or was it not? That's a key question. What did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? Did he actually make propitiation possible or did he actually propitiate? What does the text say? He is the propitiation. It does not say he makes propitiation possible if you would believe in him someday. Because propitiation by its very nature means a removal of wrath. And so either Jesus removed God's wrath on the cross or he did not. And that brings up a huge question. If Jesus actually removed God's wrath on the cross, then why are there people in hell today suffering God's wrath if Jesus removed that wrath on the cross? Because David Allen says Jesus made propitiation for those who would never even believe. And so if you never believe in Jesus and you die in your sins and you go to hell and in hell, if you believe hell is a place of, of suffering and of torment, of wrath, then you're suffering in hell for sins that were propitiated by Jesus on the cross. The wrath was removed and yet you are having to suffer that wrath a second time. So either Jesus did not actually make propitiation for you or he made propitiation possible. And if it's a possibility, then that would mean that there could be a hypothetical reality that nobody would ever be saved. If Jesus just made us savable by dying on the cross then there could be a possibility that no one would ever be saved. Or did Jesus actually make propitiation on the cross for his people? 
Either Jesus actually propitiates God's wrath on the cross or he didn't. He just made it a possibility. Either Jesus actually accomplished redemption by perching us as a people or he didn't. He just made it a possibility. Either he became a curse in our place literally or he just made it a possibility. Either he reconciled us to the Father or he made it a possibility. Either Jesus cried out, it is finished, or I've made it possible if you would just use your faith. So why are there people suffering in hell right now if Jesus was their propitiation? So you've got to basically make propitiation, if it's for the whole world, even those that never believe, then the propitiation is not a real propitiation. It just makes propitiation possible. It makes the removal of God's wrath possible. It doesn't actually remove God's wrath. It doesn't actually propitiate anybody's sin. It just makes it a possibility, which in the end means there's really no substitutionary atonement because Jesus did not substitute himself for anybody in particular. He just made salvation a possibility by his death. And then you actually make the effects of the propitiation a reality once you use your free will to repent and believe. So if, if, if your sins were propitiated and God's wrath was propitiated and Jesus absorbed it on your behalf and Jesus died in your place and you never ever believe in that and you're suffering in hell, it's almost what we call double jeopardy. You are suffering the wrath of God for sins that have already been paid by Jesus. And that would be unjust. Now, at this point, you may be saying, okay, Pastor Sean, let me, let me answer your objection. Let me answer you with an objection. Well, let me give you a response. You would say that, well, Jesus did propitiate God's wrath. Jesus did die in their place as a substitutionary atonement. But the reason that they go to hell, Pastor Sean, is because they just didn't accept the gift. Jesus died for them. Jesus made atonement possible for them, but they just didn't accept the gift. In other words, uh, the gift has been selected for them. The gift has been paid for, but God's not going to force that gift on anybody. No one can be forced to accept the gift. And so Jesus paid for the gift of eternal life on the cross. He made propitiation for the entire world, for every single person who ever lived. Uh, But the reason people are not saved is because they choose not to accept the gift. And therefore, when they don't accept the gift, they go to hell and suffer God's wrath. In other words, what they're saying is this the atonement is only a potential hypothetical propitiation. In other words, the atonement, the death of Christ on the cross, doesn't become real, it doesn't become activated, it doesn't become true for a sinner until they meet the conditions of repenting and believing. So once you repent and once you believe, then what Jesus did on the cross becomes real. It didn't happen on the cross. Jesus didn't really make propitiation on the cross. He didn't really reconcile anybody on the cross. He just made it possible. And you could go your whole life and have that propitiation made for you, that reconciliation made for you, and you can never accept it. And then you go to hell, even though Jesus was made a propitiation for you. Do you see a problem with this reasoning? 
it brings up a huge problem. If Jesus died for all sins, and let's just establish that. Did Jesus die for all sins? Do you find any Bible verse that Jesus said, that the Bible says Jesus died for some of your sins? We can go to Bible verse after Bible verse that Jesus died for all sins. But yet, if you follow this argumentation that Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world, even those that don't believe, and they're suffering in hell, even though God's wrath has already been absorbed in their place, then what you're saying is there is one sin for which Jesus did not die on the cross. There's one sin he didn't make a propitiation for. There's one sin he did not make atonement for. And you may say, well, what's that sin, Sean? What's the sin that Jesus didn't pay for? I thought he paid for all sins. Here's the sin he didn't pay for. It's the sin of unbelief. Every other single sin Jesus died on the cross for, but there there was one sin that wasn't covered by his blood, and that is unbelief. Because if he had paid for the sin of unbelief, and that sin was covered, then you would believe. But if you don't believe, and let's just establish not believing in Jesus, is that a sin? You bet. It's one of the biggest sins if we're to rank sins. Not believing in Jesus, not trusting in Jesus is a major sin. So if you don't repent and you don't believe in Jesus and that sin was paid for, then why are you not repenting and believing if it was paid for? Either it wasn't really paid for, it wasn't really propitiated on the cross, it was only hypothetical, or Jesus didn't die for that and thus He didn't die for all sins so you're left with what i call john owen's big three john owen is a puritan who back in the the 1500s wrote the death of death and the death of christ a masterful work on the atonement and to this day i don't think it's ever been refuted i don't think it's actually uh, i don't think it's exegetically logically biblically can be refuted the 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 conclusions he's come up with in this in-depth study of the atonement listen to the three options you're left with if if this is the the way you're going to you're going to believe number 1 either jesus died for the sins of all men. That's the argument that Dr. David Allen is is arguing. Jesus died for the sins of all men. Or, number two, Jesus died for all the sins of some people. That's the limited atonement view. That's the view that, that we would hold to, I would hold to. Or, Jesus died for some of the sins of all people Namely, the sin he didn't die for was unbelief. And so if the last is true, that he just died for some of the sins, but not all the sins, in that case, no one would be saved because there would be a sin to be answered for that wasn't paid for. Let me give you a quote from John Owen from The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Quote, Why are not all free from the punishment of their sins? You will say because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment, do it or not? If so, then why must that hinder them more than their sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? 
If he did not, then he did not die for all their sins, unquote. Here's the only tenable conclusion in my mind and the position that I take in the extent and intent of the atonement. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, except unbelief, then he did not die for all the sins of anybody. And so everybody must be condemned. There's no other position except that he died for the sins of his elect people only. Now, that's a deep treatment of the intent of what propitiation really means. You see, the, the, the bottom line here really comes in how you understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Did he actually, literally, historically make propitiation? Or did he make propitiation possible? Notice the text. Read carefully the text. Jesus, he is the propitiation. The propitiation. In other words, he propitiated God's wrath on the cross. He literally did it. And if he did it, then that wrath is removed. If it was only hypothetical, it's only potential, and you activate it by the conditions of repentance and faith, then there would be a possibility that no one would ever come. And then if you're suffering twice for your sins, your sins have already been paid for on the cross, but you're paying for them a second time, and it's because of your unbelief, then your unbelief wasn't paid for. And therefore, there's a sin that Jesus didn't die for, your unbelief. Now that's a deep argument, but it gets to the root of the nature of propitiation. Now let's continue to listen to what he has to say. That is not what this passage says. He doesn't say he died for some Jews and then some Gentiles in the world. The text doesn't say that. He doesn't say he died for some group of people from all groups of people. That converts whole world into some of all the world. That's not interpretively possible. Number three, the word world in Greek here in the text is the word cosmos. And you can look at a hundred Greek dictionaries and never will you find the meaning of the word cosmos in any Greek dictionary to mean the world of the elect only. And so all three of those options go out the window. No, John means what he says. Jesus is the propitiation not only for the sins of believers who are rightly related to him through repentance of sin and faith, but Jesus also is the propitiation, died for the sins of all unbelievers, whether they believe in Jesus or not. That's what the text says. Now let me show you why that's the case. Look at the phrase, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You have an adjective whole in the word world. We know what the word world means. Sometimes it means the world of people. And you now have a statement, the whole world. So all of the world. That doesn't leave anybody out. 
You see, you can't transmute that to mean some in the world. That's not what the text says. It says whole world. But number two, 1 John 5, 19, turn right three chapters and go to verse 19, makes it clear what John is talking about. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now I want you to notice the two categories. We are of God, just like John said, he's the propitiation for our sins, believers, and he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Here's that exact phrase in Greek and in English perfectly reflected again in 519. And there are two groups of people in the world. There are we who are saved and everybody else who's unsaved. There aren't any other categories. So John is contextually telling you that his phrase, whole world, is a phrase that means exactly what it says, all people in the world. Jesus is the propitiation for all people. Now, in the last part of this message, I want to show you why this is crucial, why it matters what you believe and why what this is saying, uh, why it's important. And I need two DBU students as to come up here and stand with me to illustrate it. I need a guy and a girl. I Now, that was just a flyby of 1 John 5, 18. And yes, in the Greek text, 1 John 2, 2 and 1 John 5, 19, we have the same Greek construction, whole world. I do not argue with that. My question is, again, let's go back to the nature of propitiation. If Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world, then why are there some in the world whom God's wrath has been absorbed for them, has been averted from them, and yet they are still suffering in hell? They're suffering double jeopardy. Why is that? If Jesus is the propitiation, then why are they suffering God's wrath a second time? It's because of their unbelief, Pastor Sean. Well, then again, if it's because of their unbelief, then you have a sin for which Jesus did not die. He died for every other sin except for their unbelief. But let's just look at 1 John 5, 19. Let's look at John's argument. In 1 John 5, 18, actually is where we've got the, the beginning of his thought. 1 John 5, 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is in the context of being born of God, being born again. So if you've been regenerated, if you've been born again, if you've been transformed by the new birth, then you have a new identity in Christ and you don't keep on sinning. It's not your lifestyle. It's not your pattern. You're protected by God. You're sanctified by God. You live a holy life. And the evil one does not touch him. That doesn't mean that you're not um, tempted by the evil one. It just means that the, the evil one can't snatch you out of Jesus' hand. He can't, he can't snatch you out of the grip of God's sovereignty. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
is John making an argument here of the atonement? Is he saying here that, okay, in 1 John 2, 2, I'm arguing that Jesus is the propitiation for every single person who's ever lived. And now I'm over here, and in verse 19, I'm saying that every single person who's ever lived lies in the power of the evil one. So obviously the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If that's what John is saying, it doesn't make sense for the logic of his case. What he's trying to say is there is a stark difference between a believer and a non-believer. Basically what he's arguing is there's no middle ground. You're either in Christ, you're either from God, you're either born again, or you're in the power of the evil one. There's no middle ground. He's not making an argument here that that every single person who's ever lived lies in the power of the evil one. If that were true, then his whole verse doesn't make sense because he just said, there are those of us who are from God and the evil one can't touch us. So if you are from God, if you are born of God, then the evil one can't touch you. You're not under the power of the evil one because you are in Christ. And therefore, he's making a distinction saying, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Who is the whole world? Well, it's in contrast to the elect. Now, let's just tie this back to propitiation. It's so crucial that we get back to the definition of propitiation. What did Jesus do on the cross in his propitiatory sacrifice? Did he actually make salvation possible or did he actually save? And then more importantly, how does that relate to his role as the advocate? Let's go back to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As a child of God, as a born-again Christian, as one who's been saved by grace, Jesus Christ is your advocate before the Father. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is an advocate? It means that He's your intercessor. He pleads your case before the throne of the Father because He made atonement for you. And so this is the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so the the ultimate question we've got to ask is, can you divide up Jesus' role as advocate and Jesus' role as propitiation? And what Dr. David Allen does here is he divides those two roles. He makes Jesus an advocate for believers only, But then he makes Jesus a propitiation for every single person who's ever lived. And historically, when you go back and you look at the Old Testament, the priesthood that Jesus' high priesthood is modeled after, the Aaronic priesthood on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement, he would propitiate God's wrath with the scapegoat, he went in as the representative. He was the intercessor. He was the high priest. He prayed for and he interceded on behalf of the same people. He didn't go in and pray for the Israelites and then make atonement for the Israelites and the Amorites and the Egyptians. No, he goes in and he makes atonement specifically for the Israelites and he prays for the Israelites and he intercedes specifically for the Israelites. There's no division of his intercessory work and his propitiatory work. Those for whom Christ dies, he also intercedes. And the way that you interpret this passage of Scripture from David Allen's perspective is that Jesus intercedes only for those who believe but makes propitiation for everybody, even those who don't believe. 
Now, he didn't have a chance to unpack this, but my question would be, do you believe that Jesus is an advocate for unbelievers? Is Jesus a high priest for unbelievers? Is Jesus before the throne of God pleading the case for unbelievers, for those who are in hell? Is he their advocate? We'd have to say no. Well, then the question is, okay, for whom does Christ intercede? Who does Christ pray for? Who does Christ make intercession for? Who does Christ make, uh, is the advocate for? Well, in the context of John, he's the advocate for those who believe, those for whom he made propitiation. Not only just John's original audience in Asia Minor of Jews, but also for Gentiles who would believe, all those who would believe. Jesus cannot be a propitiation for unbelievers. Jesus cannot be a high priest for unbelievers. Go back to the Gospel of John. And if you go back to the high priestly prayer where we actually see Jesus as high priest praying before the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, who is he interceding for? And it's very important. Jesus is being an advocate right before he's being a propitiation, and they're tied together. You cannot separate Jesus' high priestly ministry and his propitiatory ministry. Those whom Jesus is going to pray for right before he goes to the cross are the same people he's going to die for. He's not going to pray for somebody and then go die for them. I mean, he's not going to to die for somebody he's not praying for. Let's let's, let's hear what he has to say. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Do you see the two categories there? Jesus has authority over all flesh, all people. But yet, He gave eternal life to whom the Father had given Him. Jesus is only praying for those whom the Father had given Him, the elect. Jesus is going to pray for the elect, and He's going to die for the elect. And how do I know that? We'll go on down in the verse and you find out who Jesus is not praying for. Verse 9, I am praying for them, those who he had been given, the elect. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are, those, they are, they are yours. Jesus isn't praying for the world. Why is he not praying for the world? Why is he not praying for those who would not believe? Because he's not going to go to the cross and die for them. Jesus does not go to the cross and die for people that he's not going to also pray for. In other words, those whom Jesus prays for, he's going to die for. Does Jesus pray for every single person that's ever lived? Is Jesus an intercessor for every single person who's ever lived? Is Jesus the advocate for every single person who's ever lived? People in hell right now, is Jesus their advocate? No, and the reason why he's not their advocate is because he didn't make propitiation for them. He did not die for their sins. He died only for the sins of the elect. Then down in verse verse, um, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is us. Romans chapter 8 ties this together as well. The intercessory work of Jesus with his propitiatory work. You, You can't divide these up. 
the way many do when they, they, they think Jesus has a particular intercession for believers, but he has an unlimited atonement for people who do, don't even believe. They, they divide up his office, his high priestly work, from his propitiatory work. In Romans 8, 33-34, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died... More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see in verse 34 how Jesus is interceding for us? Why? Because he died. More than that, he was raised. Who did he do this for? It was for God's elect. I mean, all throughout the scriptures, you see that Jesus only prays for those whom were given to him by the Father. Jesus dies for those same people, those whom were given to him by the Father. And so when you go to 1 John 2, 2, and you have the word whole world there, you have to ask the question, does Jesus serve as an advocate for the whole world, meaning every single person who's ever lived, even those in hell who are not believing? Is Jesus their advocate? Is Jesus the propitiation for every single person who's ever lived, even those who are in hell right now? We have to say no. Jesus is not the advocate, nor is he the propitiation for every single person who's ever lived. If so, then every single person who's ever lived would be in heaven, and therefore you have universalism. So the question then becomes, all right, how do we understand the word whole world? It cannot mean, based upon Jesus being advocate and Jesus making propitiation, it cannot mean every single person who's ever lived. It cannot mean that. So what then does it mean? Well, the best way we can understand this is contextually who John's audience is. And it goes back to how you view the original audience and what John is saying. Jesus is the advocate for us. Jesus is the propitiation for us. Who's the us? his immediate audience of Jewish believers. And not just for us, but also for those in the whole world. Now, it doesn't say the elect in the whole world, but it it has to be believers. It has to be believers. Why does it have to be believers? Because Jesus can't be an advocate for unbelievers. Jesus can't be a propitiation for unbelievers. So it would have to mean believers who are not part of his immediate audience, either believers outside of Asia Minor or believers that are Gentiles. Either way, it has to be believers. That whole world has to be believers. It cannot be unbelievers. And here's why. And I know I'm repeating myself and being strong on this, but if, that, if, if the whole world there means every single person who's ever lived, past, present, and future, if you take exegetically, contextually, what John is arguing, then Jesus is the advocate for every single person who's ever lived, and Jesus is the propitiation for every single person who's ever lived. Therefore, there are people in hell right now suffering under God's wrath, and, and then Jesus is their propitiation, and Jesus is their advocate doesn't make any sense. How can those be suffering in hell have an advocate and how can their wrath be removed if Jesus accomplished that on the cross for them? Either he made it a possibility and they didn't come to him because they didn't use their faith to come to him. And then again, it goes back to, well, then Jesus died for almost all the sins of them, but there's one sin he didn't die for, their unbelief. That was the one sin he didn't die for. 
Now, let's move on to this illustration, which I think is where it really breaks down. This is where I don't think he understands the doctrines of grace. I think his illustration breaks down. And so let's, let's look at his illustration when he brings these two, these two students up on the stage. According to the doctrine of limited atonement, people who believe that believe that Jesus died for the sins of some people only. And then there are other people he didn't die for. Jesus dies for the sins of the elect, so to speak, or all believers, but he doesn't die for the sins of anybody else. So that's what the doctrine teaches. Okay? Now, for my illustration purposes, it's Sean, right? And it's Victoria, right? Now, I've got to pick one of these two people to be someone for whom Jesus did die, and I've got to pick one to be someone for whom Jesus didn't die. Now, it's pretty obvious that I'm going to pick Victoria as somebody for whom Jesus died, okay? I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? So for my purposes of illustration, Victoria is an example of someone for whose sins Jesus died, and God knows that. In other words, God knows that Jesus died for her sins, all right? Everybody clear on my illustration? Okay, now, what's your name again? Sean. Yeah, Sean. I'm going to remember that. Sean. Sean, you are an example, and you don't know this, and I don't know this, but God knows, for my illustration, that you are someone for whose sins Jesus did not die. Are you with me? You're not among the elect. Jesus did not die for Sean's sins. Everybody clear? Everybody clear on that? All right. I come to Victoria's house to share Christ. By the way, in my illustration, both are unsaved. Okay, they're both unsaved. Neither one of them is a believer. They're both unsaved. But now remember... Jesus did die according to God's knowledge. Jesus died for her. Jesus didn't die for him. I come to her house to witness to Victoria. And I share the gospel with Victoria. All right? Question. Can anybody, Victoria, anybody, can anybody be saved unless there's an atonement made by Christ on the cross for their sins? Yes or no? No. The scripture's clear. All right? So no one can be saved unless an atonement is made for their sins. Number two, suppose I share the gospel with Victoria and she rejects Jesus. Can Victoria be saved with an atonement made for her sins, but if she rejects Christ, can she be saved? No, because God has said there's a condition of receiving the benefits of the atonement. It's repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. So Victoria can't be saved, all right, if she rejects Christ. Question number three. If when I share the gospel with Victoria and Victoria says, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I received God's offer of salvation to me through Christ and she repents of her sin and she puts her faith in Jesus. Can Victoria be saved then when she does that, yes or no? Yes, why? Two reasons. Number one, there's an atonement for her sins. And number two, she met God's condition of that atonement being applied. She repented and believed. Are you with me? Let's just go ahead and stop right there because what he's doing, I I don't disagree with him on this part of the illustration with... um, the, the girl Victoria, who represents the, the elect person. Basically, what he's saying is, is that an atonement has been made for her because she's the elect, 
and that she's met the conditions of repenting and believing. Now, what he fails to do is to link the atonement accomplished with the atonement applied. Yes, Jesus made propitiation for the sins of his people, but the Holy Spirit will apply all that Christ did to his elect at a point in time when he gives them the gifts of repentance and faith. And so when we think about what Jesus did, Jesus on the cross purchased everything that we would need in order to come to faith in him, including repentance and faith. And so only those whom have been given to Jesus by the Father, namely the elect, will indeed repent and believe. A lost person who's not elect will not repent and believe. The reason they will not repent and believe is because they will not be regenerated. It goes back to the doctrine of election. God unconditionally elects or predestines certain people to be saved in eternity past. On the cross, Jesus particularly dies for those same people. He literally propitiates God's wrath, purchases everything that that elect person needs in order to come to faith in Christ. Then at a point in time, the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to the sinner by granting them the gifts of repentance and faith in effectual calling and in regeneration, thus ensuring that a elect sinner will in fact come to faith irresistibly in Christ. They will repent and believe. And so, yes, there are conditions for salvation. You must repent and believe in order to be saved. But our argument is that only those who repent and believe are the elect. A non-elect person will not repent and believe because they were not chosen. Christ did not die for them and the Holy Spirit will not regenerate them. And so up to this point, I agree with his argumentation. He's just leaving out conditional i mean he's leaving out predestination he's leaving out the fact that the holy spirit is going to irresistibly draw the elect and so he's what he's failing to do is that he's not linking other doctrines to the doctrine of of the atonement and how you present the gospel now when he moves over to sean the non-elect person, this is where he really goes off the rails as far as misunderstanding or mischaracterizing um, the situation. One of the things that he's going to do is he's going to talk about God knowing this. And I just want to ask the question, does God simply know who's going to choose him as if God is taking in passive, he's passively taking in knowledge? Or does God actually do more than just know, does he actually choose? Again, that goes back to the intent of the atonement. What was God's intention in the atonement? Was his intention to send Jesus to die for those whom he had chosen before the foundation of the world? Or is God just sitting back passively taking in knowledge of what people are going to do once presented with the gospel? God kind of knows what's going to happen because he observes uh, that that, that one's the elect and one's not the elect. So think about the language that he uses. Let's go back and, and see his illustration as he moves over to Sean, the non-elect person. Now let's go talk to Sean. I come to Sean's house. Now remember, Sean is someone whom God knows, God chose, 
that Jesus did not die for his sins. I don't know that, and Sean doesn't know that at this point, okay? Sean has no clue, so I'm coming to witness. All I know is Sean tells me he's not a Christian. And so I witness to Sean. Now, question number one, can anybody be saved for whom there's no atonement, yes or no? No. Number two, if Sean rejects Christ, when I offer him the gospel and he rejects, can Sean be saved? No. Number three, if I come to Sean and offer him the gospel and he says, yes, I'm a sinner and yes, I turn from my sin and I believe in Jesus, can Sean be saved? No. Why? There's no atonement made for his sins. On the doctrine of limited atonement, if Sean were to believe in Jesus, he cannot be saved. He could believe a thousand times and he cannot be saved. Why? Because there's no atonement made for his sin. Do you see it? This is interesting logic, but what he fails to see is this. If Sean is a non-elect person and the gospel is presented to him, he will never come to faith in Christ. He will never repent and believe. Why will he never repent and believe? Because he's not elect. He's not chosen. He's not going to be irresistibly drawn to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's doing is he's, major, he's making a major mischaracterization here. He's, if a non-elect person believes in the atonement, the atonement won't save him because it wasn't made for him. The problem is, and what he fails to say here, is that no non-elect person will ever believe. He will continue in his deadness of sin unless God regenerates him. And who's God going to regenerate? God's only going to regenerate the elect. And so he set up a straw man, a fallacy, if you will, basically saying that God's done all he can to try to save this guy by offering him the gospel. And if this non-elect person really wants to come to faith in Christ, he can't be saved because there's no atonement for him. That's not what we believe. We believe that the atonement was only made for the elect. Only the elect will come to faith. And so what he's arguing here is that a non-elect person really wants to come. A non-elect person hears the gospel, wants Jesus, wants to believe in Jesus, repents and believes, but therefore he can't be saved because there was no atonement made for him. The problem is, again, I will say it, a non-elect person will never believe. Why? That person was not given by the Father to Jesus. He was not predestined or she was not predestined before the foundation of the world. And so from before the foundation of the world, they were not chosen for salvation. And so when Jesus comes 2,000 years ago to make propitiation on the cross, he does not die he does not intercede. His high priestly work on the, on the cross and making propitiation is not intended. Again, the intention is not intended to save that person because they were not elect. And then the Holy Spirit is never going to bring them to regeneration, is never going to effectually call them because they're not the elect. And so this is really a false argument saying that 
A, a, a non-elect person who really wants to get saved is going to repent and believe and there's going to be no atonement for them because uh, Jesus didn't die for them. That, that's just a false argument. Let's go on to see what else he has to say. Now it gets worse. When I come to Sean's house and I don't know his condition, okay? I mean, all I know is he's unsaved. But God knows that there's no atonement for him. So I come to Sean's house and just like I did over here, I offer Sean the gospel. I tell him the good news of Jesus and I offer him the gospel. What am I offering Sean as someone for whom there's no atonement? I'm offering him the whole of a donut. Because you see, there is nothing for me to offer Sean. For Sean, for whom Jesus did not die, there is no gospel, no good news to offer. Do you see? Christ didn't die. For, he's one of the non-elect. And so I'm coming to tell him God will save him if he'll believe. If he believes, will God save him? No. Okay, there, there, there's again a lot of problems with his thought process here. A lot of problems. Number one, we don't know who the elect are. He's, he's making it sound like we know who the elect are. We don't. And so we don't just offer a gospel. He makes it sound like the gospel is a, a commodity that we offer. We don't offer a, a commodity in the gospel. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. What is the apostolic preaching of the gospel? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but the issue is, number one, we don't know the identity of the elect. We're never told that, and we're never told to, to figure that out. We are told to preach the gospel, to preach Christ. And again, he's making it sound like, you know, if we preach, what are we offering him? Well, we don't know the identity of the elect. We preach Christ and him crucified to every single person because we're commanded to do that. And if that person is among the elect, he will believe and the atonement will be sufficient. You see, here's the issue. The issue is, what are we offering them? I want to give you some words from David Allen on the blog. After there was a lot of comments, over 200 comments going back and forth, uh, he went back in on the sbctoday.com blog and, and, and made some statements. And I'm going to give a, a quote here. Quote, To summarize my claim, if no atonement exists for the non-elect, then it is impossible to offer the gospel to them in good faith because we are offering something that in fact does not exist. Not only that, as 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 makes clear, God and Christ themselves are pleading with people through the witness and preaching of the apostles and all Christians to be reconciled to God. How can God be offering salvation to people who are hearing the word preached, whom God himself knows to be non-elect, and hence for whom there is no atonement on the limited atonement scheme? Unquote. Well, let me ask David Allen a question. What are you offering in an atonement that's not really an atonement. You see, if you believe that Jesus Christ was a propitiation for every single person who ever existed, then you're believing in a hypothetical or a potential atonement, an atonement that's really not an atonement. Not until you actually activate it when you meet the conditions of repentance and faith. Jesus didn't really propitiate God's wrath. Jesus didn't really reconcile. He just made 
sinners savable. He made salvation possible. So what are you offering? You're basically offering a hypothetical salvation. You're basically saying that Jesus didn't really accomplish anything on the cross. He's waiting for you to come to him. And once you do that, then the benefits of the cross become yours. So in reality, in his view, he's offering them a potential savior. Whereas in our scheme, we are not offering a potential savior. We are offering a savior who actually saved. You know, Hebrews 7.25 tells us about the sufficiency of the savior. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he, talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, notice the tie-in between the salvation of Christ and the intercession of Christ. He always lives to make intercession. Who is Jesus always living to make intercession for? Only those for whom he died. And he's able to save to the uttermost. He didn't just make salvation possible. It wasn't just a hypothetical reality. We can present a sufficient Savior who actually saves sinners from their sins and accomplish something on the cross, not just a hypothetical reality. And so again, what he's doing here is he's basically making it sound like we who believe in a limited atonement really can't offer sinners anything in good faith. And again, we don't know the identity of the elect. And so I want to finish his, his thought process here. Then I want us to go and, and look at what is the apostolic preaching of the cross in the book of Acts. What, what do we see modeled for us in the book of Acts? Let's see him finish out his, um, his statements. Why? God couldn't save him. Why? There's no atonement made for his sins. I am offering Sean something that doesn't exist. Now it gets worse. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 that God through Christ has reconciled the world to himself through the death of Christ. And then Paul says this, we come to you and we present the gospel and Paul says, as God and Christ through us begs you, be reconciled to God. Not only am I coming to Sean's house to offer him the gospel and to beg him to come to Christ, but I'm just a delivery boy. According to Paul, God and Jesus together through me, I'm the delivery boy. They are offering and begging him to come to Christ. But if there's no atonement made for him, God is put in a position where he is offering him something that God himself never caused to exist for him and thus it is not possible for God to genuinely and freely and without lying to him offer him that salvation. Why? Because God knows he's not one of the elect. There's no salvation for him. And not only am I offering him the whole of a donut, God is disingenuously offering him that which doesn't exist. Ladies and gentlemen, it matters what you believe about for whose sins Jesus died. We are getting very close to the gospel when we talk about who Jesus died for and who Jesus didn't die for. 
And I know that it will win me not many friends when this goes out on the internet today. But I must say, my conscience must say, the doctrine of limited atonement is a bad doctrine. In fact, it is false doctrine. Now, there's a lot that can be said there, and I, and I respectfully disagree with him. I, I would never say that a person who has a different view of the atonement is actually believing false doctrine. That, that's a strong statement for a president of, not a president, but a, a theology and preaching professor of one of our Southern Baptist seminaries to call limited atonement a false doctrine. You can say it's a different doctrine, a different understanding of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, the intention of the atonement, but to call it false doctrine is really strong language. Um, I would not uh, go that far to say that. Now, again, there's a lot of things that he said there. He's basically saying that if, you know, if, if God knows that he's not one of the elect, then God is not offering him anything genuine. He's offering him basically the whole of a donut, and God's offering him something that doesn't exist. And again, he doesn't get back to the intention of the atonement. It's not simply that God knows he's not one of the elect. It's not that God knows this. It's God chose it to be that way. God in his sovereignty chose certain people to be saved, and others he passed over and left them in their sins as reprobate. And Jesus only came to die for those whom God predestined. And the Holy Spirit will only effectually call and regenerate those whom God predestined and those for whom Christ died. And so the issue again is we don't know who these people are. And so when Paul says we implore, we beg, we plead, be reconciled to God, we can genuinely go to any person we see and say to them, you need to be reconciled with God. You need to be. It's a command. Be reconciled to God. If not, you will die in your sins. And so we are, we are telling people to be reconciled with God because we don't know the identity of the elect. Let me just um, address the apostolic preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts. If you trace the sermons in the book of Acts, you will find some things that are very interesting. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you ever hear this, and I, I, and I challenge you to go look in the book of Acts at the actual recorded sermons. Now, n- number one, we need to understand that these sermons are probably summary sermons. They're probably not the entire sermon that Peter and Paul and, and, and Stephen and Philip and others preached. They're probably summaries, but what we have in the inspired Scripture is what the Holy Spirit wanted to be in the inspired Scripture recorded in the book of Acts. Nowhere in the book of Acts will you ever find this terminology when somebody's preaching the gospel to lost people. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and so therefore you need to believe in Jesus. Now, that may sound shocking to you because that's really what we hear all the time is the way the gospel is being presented, but you won't find that in Acts. What you do find in Acts is a preaching of the cross, a preaching of the resurrection, and then a call for people to repent and believe. But nowhere do you ever see the apostles saying, you need to believe in Jesus because he specifically died for you. If you meet these conditions uh, of repentance and belief, then then the atonement will become uh, something for you. No, we preach Christ crucified. We explain 
the, the, the crucifixion, you explain the resurrection, and you call people to repent and believe. For example, in, in, the, in the sermon in Pentecost, where Peter stands up in, in Acts chapter 2, Basically, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then later on down in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Nowhere does Peter ever say, Hey, listen, Jews. Jesus died for you. He says, no, as a matter of fact, you crucified him. Jesus died on the cross and God raised him again. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How about Acts 4.10? Let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Again, there's the the, the explanation, the proclamation of the crucifixion, but nowhere do they ever say Jesus died specifically for you, so believe in him. They say Jesus died, he rose again. I could go on and on, Acts chapter 8. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 13, where Paul goes to Antioch of Pisidia, Acts chapter 17, where Paul goes into Thessalonica. You have these recorded sermons. Let me just give you some words of wisdom from J.I. Packer. He's got an excellent book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And so what I want to do is, is basically read some things from this just to encourage us. He says this, The object of saving faith is thus not, strictly speaking, the atonement, but the Lord Jesus Christ who made atonement. We must not, in presenting the gospel, isolate the cross and its benefits from the Christ whose cross it was. It is obvious that if a preacher thought that the statement Christ died for every one of you made to any congregation would be unverifiable and probably not true. He would take care not to make it in his gospel preaching. You do not find such statements in the sermons of, for instance, George Whitfield or Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The fact is, what has to be said about the cross when preaching the gospel is simply that Christ's death is the ground on which Christ's forgiveness is given. The fact is that the New Testament never calls any man to repent on the ground that Christ died specifically and particularly for him. The basis on which the New Testament invites sinners to put faith in Christ is simply that they need him and that he offers himself to them and that those who receive him are promised all the benefits that his death secured for his people. The gospel is not believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore for yours, any more than it is believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins and so perhaps not for yours. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you himself as Savior. You see, it's important how we deal with this issue. And I agree with Dr. David Allen. It's important in how you present the gospel. Can you genuinely go to a lost person and look them in the eye and say, Jesus Christ died for you? If you believe in the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement, you can't do that because you don't know. I don't know. I don't know if, God, if Christ died for them or not. 
what I can say to them is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath. He made reconciliation on the cross for sinners. He was buried in a tomb and He rose again three days later. He is a perfect Savior who is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to Him. You have need of a Savior. You are a sinner. If you die in your sins, you will spend eternity separated from Christ in hell, suffering God's wrath. Therefore, because He is the resurrected Christ and Lord, I urge you, I command you to repent and believe. If you do repent and believe, you can be assured that your sins will be forgiven and that Christ will be a perfect Savior to save you. I can do that in good faith as a good Calvinist. I can present Christ as the all-sufficient Savior who does save to the uttermost. And I don't know the identity of the elect. All I do is present to them a full Savior who is able to save not make salvation possible. If salvation were possible that Christ accomplished on the cross, I would say something like this. You know, Jesus died for your sins on the cross. But you know, that does not become your um, benefit until you actually repent and believe. So therefore, you need to repent and believe in order to get the benefit of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, again, we may be arguing semantics and how we present the gospel, but the theology behind it is this. Again, let's just ask those initial questions that we asked in conclusion. I know this has gone long. What actually happened on the cross when Jesus made propitiation? Did He actually propitiate God's wrath against sin, or did He simply make atonement possible? Number two, did Jesus actually purchase the gifts of repentance and faith in the atonement, ensuring that the elect would come? Number three, how does John use the term the whole world? Number four, what is the apostolic preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts? And number five, how does Christ's role as the high priest in his intercession relate to his propitiation? Can you divide those two works up? Can you divide up his intercession from his atoning work? Those are key questions that I don't think Dr. David Allen wrestled with, answered, dealt with the objections, dealt deeply into the text. Now again, It was a sermon and he didn't have time to do all of that. And so I think it's important from time to time for us to think deeply about these issues. And so um, there are differences on the extent and the intent of the atonement. This has been a long podcast and thank you for sticking with me. Um, If you've stuck with me this long, I know I've got a little passionate about this, but I just get really concerned when... um, prominent Southern Baptist professors call what the church has believed for 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 hundreds of years as false doctrine and did not deal with some of the issues that are that are clearly uh, that need to be dealt with and and actually maybe misrepresented our view and so I think we just need to to expose that and to have some dialogue again I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity podcast by Pastor Sean Cole of Sterling Colorado 
of Emanuel Baptist Church, also an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. If you have any questions or you have um, issues you'd like to talk about on a future podcast, please contact me. My contact information is all at seancole.net, my Facebook, my Twitter, my email. I'd love to hear from you. Go on iTunes and give us a review and rating. We'd love to, uh, to interact with you, especially on these controversial issues. I know there's a lot of differences of opinion out there, and it's fun to, to dive into these issues. And so uh, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.